0: Hi, and welcome to a Real Estate Sessions Rewind. Yes, this is a best of show, and I'm going back to August 4th, 2020, just last summer. Gonna be talking to Mike Simonson, the CEO of Altos Research. This was a great episode, got a lot of really good feedback. Mike's company is the source of data in the real estate markets, the very local markets for tons of realtors and organizations around the country. I think it's a fascinating story how he developed Altos Research, and I hope you'll enjoy it. So Mike, take it away. We think about,
1: you know, we know we're supposed to have positive attitude and, you know, write down our goals. And we, you know, these like meditate, like, you know, these things. Um, But for me, the understanding of the biology of the emotions was pivotal for me to doing the work. And then when I when you do the work, all the good things happen.
0: you're listening to The Real Estate Sessions. I'm your host, Bill Risser. Listen in as I interview leaders in our industry, getting their stories and their journeys to the world of real estate. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 249 of The Real Estate Sessions podcast. This is my first episode of season six of The Real Estate Sessions and very excited to continue on this path and really could not have a better guest to kick off Season 6. This is, uh, his name is Mike Simonson. He's the CEO of Altos Research, uh, a data company that has a very interesting backstory in how it, how it became uh, really the leader in this hyper-local data, uh, and also some other great big enterprise stuff as well. They've been around now, I think, 14 years. But Mike's an amazing guy. He's doing some great stuff outside of his company as well. We're going to talk about all of that. So let's get this thing started. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Bill thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's so it's so cool. You know, you and I've met a, a couple of times, not had long deep conversations, but I'll never forget we were in San Diego. Jeff Turner had a a, a sweet Airbnb Airbnb pad up in kind of towards uh, Little Italy. And I remember walking in there and it was you and Jeff and Heather. And it's just this brain trust of people. And I was like, I'm just going to hang out here. This is going to be cool.
1: Oh, that's great. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Those those were the the early days of uh, social media and getting, uh, you know, working our whole uh, new marketing system. You know, the whole environment was changing.
0: Yeah, it it was really cool to to see all that stuff happening and and uh and then I've run into you, I think it's just an in minute less maybe a year ago. And so I, I asked you then, hey, can I get you on the show? And you agreed. So I'm really happy to have you here. I always start every podcast with with I want to find out your backstory, right? Everybody can find out about Altos Research and all the cool stuff you're doing at the company, but I wanna find out a little bit uh more about you. Uh childhood was you're born just outside of Chicago. Or- That's correct. Yep. So, let's talk about, um, you know, what that what that's like. You know, growing up, I, I always think, when I think Chicago, I think, first of all, you got to be either Cubs or White Sox. There's just no choice. Yep. You got to well, be a Bears fan or you're in a lot of trouble. Is that's that right. right. <laughs> so, kind of tell me about, tell me about growing up there.
1: So, uh, yeah. So, Cubs, Bears, the, uh, you know, as a kid, a little bit of White Sox in the 80s, but, but, you know, ended up gravitating <laughs> to the Cubs. So, growing up in suburban Chicago, so- um, you know simple suburban middle class life uh, my dad was a high school teacher you know possibly now though the the one of the most uh, interesting things about that upbringing was that my mother started her company in the 70s and so she was a, a an entrepreneur in the, in the 1970s and you know built a built her company she was doing you um, Individual career development work with individuals, and grew it into HR consulting, and worked with big corporations over the years, and wrote books, and and uh, and so, you know, that was, uh, you know, a, a lot of of where my entrepreneurial spirit came from.
0: So look, talk about an entrepreneur like ahead of her time. I mean, there weren't a whole lot of women entrepreneurs building companies' operations in the 70s.
1: No, that's very true. And and yeah. she was uh, sort of an accidental entrepreneur. You know, she was working with uh, women who were like recently divorced and needing to get back into the workforce, you know, people who'd never had jobs before. Some of those things that were happening in the 70s. Um, and she had originally started in, like, nonprofit roles with, like, government-sponsored programs, things like that. Um, she'd done adult education work. Her graduate work was, you know, an educational psychology kind of thing. And, th- and then there came a time when it she, the, whatever the, the government programs ran out, and she had to develop it on her own. And she had an accountant. She said, I'm, I think I'm going to set up a nonprofit. And the accountant said, why do a nonprofit. It's just as much work and you don't get to make any money. <laughs> right. right. So, uh, so she started a company and wow. you know, built it slowly over the years.
0: You know, your career path, you, you obviously, we, we, we'll go back through your college years and what you did in Silicon Valley. Can I just make the assumption that in high school that you were kind of a geek maybe or a nerd? I don't know which way you want to go with it, but tech was heavy in your life pretty early, right?
1: Uh, yeah, so I was, uh, you know, I s- started playing around writing software at ten, kind of thing. So okay, that, gotcha. it was always in the future for me.
0: Yeah, you knew it was coming, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you end up, um, you end up not sticking around the Chicagoland area to go to school. This was probably like most children. I want to go someplace different. I want to see a different part of the country. Am I am I beaten down the, going down the right path? Yeah,
1: for sure. I was um, actually I was an athlete. I was a skier. And both my parents were skiers, uh, so I ski raced my my whole life. And then, to in, to race ski race in college, there's a few places that that you can go, not that many. And uh, and I didn't want to go to Vermont, so <laughs> I went. So I went west, and and I ended up in you know in in Reno, Tahoe.
0: So you're at a University of Nevada, Reno, and I can't imagine how much fun it was. First of all, it's not like super, it's a kind of a, a little bit of a hike from school up into the slopes, right? Uh, know, 45 an minutes an to an yeah, hour. Yeah, I mean, it's I an hour
1: It's It's not that bad.
0: Yeah. Okay. It's, it's really good. And so where did you ski growing up in Chicago?
1: Well, so, so both of my folks were skiers and, and my dad was a ski patroller and my mom was an instructor um and and uh, for a while in the 70s and the 80s my dad ran the national ski patrol as one of the executives in the national ski patrol on a volunteer basis and so um so we grew up skiing in, in Wisconsin and we would go up at you know every saturday and sunday and all winter long as a kid and that's what we did okay. and cool. uh and then you know we'd had friends in Colorado and stuff and we'd go out and do a week or. So, you know, spring breaks and stuff out there and do, you know, big mountain skiing and, and other yeah. kind of things, but it was, and then of course you grew up skiing in Wisconsin and there's nothing else to do. So you grew up racing
0: and that's, that's what you do. Um, you still ski today? I do for sure. Yeah. 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 So, yeah you have a family. So you're, you have a daughter, right? I do. My daughter's Is she skiing or snowboarding. She's, What's the she's a skier
1: and, uh, oh. yeah. And so we, uh, and I still have, you know, I have a place in Tahoe and we get to, spend a lot of time in the mountains and, and one of the count them as little victories as a parent, right? Like parenting that you do. And I managed to get her to be really good at skiing before she, you know, considered or had friends, realized she had friends who might be snowboarders. Mm-hmm. And so now when you're, you know, you're a 12 year old girl and you're really good at skiing. Yeah you don't want to be
0: a beginner snowboarder again. right? That is parenting one-on-one. I love that. Right. Yeah. Good, good call, dad. Um, <laughs> so uh, after school there, you end up, you end up uh, going back to Chicago, right? Mm-hmm. To get your MBA. Yep. And I, lo- I love the, I love what the MBA focus is. Tell us what that, what the focus of your MBA at DePaul. It was entrepreneurship. Yeah. And, and,
1: uh, and in fact, I went back and I, Went back to Chicago because I was also writing software for my mom's company at the time. So I started when I was in undergrad, I, I started writing software for her company. I probably would have stayed in California, except that, you know, like I've got a, you know, like we were doing cool stuff. So I went back to Chicago and worked on, uh, you know,
0: on, with her for a few
1: years and did grad school.
0: And so obviously... Built, built up your skills and now, but, you're, but California comes calling and back you go. So Definitely. you go back to Silicon Valley. Um, let's talk about that time, you know, and it had to be super exciting. We're talking right about 2000? Yeah, 99, January 99,
1: two bubbles ago, right? Like it was, that's how I describe it. Like two bubbles ago and it was, uh, like, it was super exciting to be in Silicon Valley in the late 90s. There was amazing stuff happening. The world was changing. The beautiful core ethos of Silicon Valley was really rich and alive and well. And, and, uh, and, and I just, you know, I was super excited to go, uh, to be a part of it. And, and so, yeah, so we came out in, in 99, back out, came back to California for the last time, you know, 21, 22 years ago now. Yeah. what did you do when you first got here? I you know I started working for a company um that uh, it was called Vital Sign Software did networking software like you know in the computer network and are they performing well and, and 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 uh there were a few things that of that that team and that company and that product that have stuck with me for a long time, and you know, I do data software now with Altos, and there are elements of what we do in Altos Research that I, you know, picked up from that product that we had at Vital Signs. And um, the other thing that stuck with me there was there was a the founder CEO of that company, a mm-hmm. remarkable guy named Jim Getz, went on to be a venture capitalist, and you know, sold Vital Signs and so and and he. There were some really amazing leadership lessons from Jim, and for a while, Jim was Jim. for example, was the only venture capital investor in WhatsApp, and WhatsApp wow. and sold that to Facebook for twenty billion dollars. He's the way old, to go, Jim. Yeah, like he's a neat guy, right? <laughs> so yeah, yeah. it was, cool. it was really interesting. So I, um, and and then I, you know, learned a lot of lessons about how he ran his team. And there, you know, the, and how we led product. And so there was a ton of stuff going on in there that was really, really, really great. Last lifetime.
0: It seems, it seems unique to me. And maybe, maybe I'm way out of place with this um, take, but the, the fact that you have this entrepreneurial drive, you know, you, you knew you were going to probably own your own company and start something, even when you were first arriving there. And, and even while you're in school, you knew it. But you're also super techie coder, data scientist, kind of a guy, this whole thing going on. And I thought that those didn't work together very well, that sometimes someone wired for that tech side doesn't tend to be thinking bigger. They want to just,
1: I mean, they they think big, but in a different way. The greatest Silicon Valley entrepreneurs have have both. They uh, are builders and they can sell and they also have the technical skills. And frankly... Compared to those guys, I don't have any technical skill compared to the real, to the real power, you know, people. Okay. And um, I have, um, I probably don't have any sales skills either compared to the real, power, you know, <laughs> you think about that. Um, but, uh, but really, so it's something that I've been able to do reasonably well over my career is uh, lead a product from a technical standpoint and from a, you know, a vision um, in like information architecture standpoint, but also be perfectly happy at being in front of um, you know customers and right. and reasonably competent at marketing and and communications and and sales the sales process.
0: If that well. if that's something that uh, all parents could pass on to their children, right? The ability to be comfortable in multiple places. I mean, that is that is that is the the secret to success, I think.
1: Yeah, and and you know, there's uh, a lot of things, a lot of lessons you can learn at you know really great, well-run Silicon Valley companies over the years. There are uh, people who are highly skilled salespeople who are not technical at all, and they're perfectly okay with that, right? They they don't need to be, um, and there but and there are uh, technical people who are perfectly happy to be in front of. Uh, you know, in, in building product and developing technology, and and it's okay to develop those skills out. But there's sort of a, a Silicon Valley saying that, you know, the, the higher you go in an organization, ultimately, it's all sales. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the really great ones develop both sides of the skills.
0: Yeah. I, I love that. I just find that so find that so fascinating. So you, you I've, I've read this story in a couple of places and I, I saw you talk about this on a couple of other shows. I love how you get to the world of real estate. So I'll just leave it at that. And can you share how that came about?
1: Yeah. Well, so, you know, we're here in Silicon Valley and, and, you know, I'm 30 years old and you want to buy a house and, you know, a good neighborhood kind of thing. So you, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, you're 30 years old and you got a million dollar mortgage. And in a lot of the country, you get a million dollar mortgage now. This is 20 years ago. A million dollar mortgage right now is is not that uncommon. But but uh, you know, it's 20 years ago, so I don't remember what the interest rate was, but it, you know, seven percent or something like that. Sure. And yeah. in Silicon Valley, that's a f- at the time, is a fifty year old house, a three bedroom, one bath that has not been updated since the seventies, and wow. so you buy this house with this giant mortgage, and 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 now, of course, that's a seventy year old house, right? <laughs> um, yeah. And so it, it's
0: not getting any better.
1: <laughs> it's not getting any better, right? Um, and so you know you you end up in this environment, and then the bottom falls out of the Nasdaq bubble. And and in fact, we actually bought our home after the peak of the bubble. Like we knew it. And uh, you know, because at that point, one of the things that was happening was that finally listings and information about what's for sale have been were transitioning to be online. Mm-hmm. So before that point, you had to know the guy with the book and he's got his little printout from the MLS and like nobody knows anything right no you you know that the best agents know their market really well and they can tell you all these things but as a consumer you have nothing and and so all of a sudden this information is there and and I'm in the information business and so I start learning and you know we were able actually to make a really good offer a low ball offer on a on this house in a world where nobody had, had low ball offers for a decade Right. And so, um, you know, we actually got a reasonably good deal. But then, of course, the NASDAQ bubble continues to blow up. And and like the 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 NASDAQ fell like 25 percent. On the day I got married. Like, (laughs) So so then uh, all this stuff is happening. I know that. I'm beginning to have more information about what's going on than than anybody, most people. And so I actually started building just little models, uh, databases for my own understanding of what was happening in the local market because I needed to know what was going on. And, And there were some really interesting early observations. One was that in 2002 and 2003, the median home price in Los Altos, California, fell by a third. By a third, yeah. Uh, what was interesting is that the low end of the market, where where I had bought, it didn't go anywhere. It didn't go down at all. It was mm-hmm. these two, three, four million dollar Nasdaq stock option homes that just cratered. But in two thousand three, if you remember, you could still get a million dollar mortgage, and you know people weren't even asking any questions about
0: it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I...
1: And so and especially in, in this town, like it was, you know, common. And so one of the things I started doing was a lesson from my Vital sign software days, which is you look at the market. We look at the market at Altos in four price range segments, quartiles, because the high end of the market may be behaving very differently from the low end. And in 2003 in Los Altos, that's exactly what was happening and and we did it in the networking software because there were you know we you know like I, I was like oh I'm going to use that technique and, and so it was really useful now at the company at Altos we we look at every zip code in the country every zip city state nationally and break everything always into four price range segments so that you can always tell that the high end of the market is doing very differently from the low end and the high end in Los Altos is very different from you know the high end in, in whatever uh, you know, Glendale, Arizona, right? And so yeah. they all have their own. They all have their own little things. And so that was a function of what I did at the time. And I and I was able to say, "Wow, my house is totally fine." Even it's though cool. median home price fell by a third. Yeah, my house is fine. I still have the cheapest house in this zip. This is this is two two
0: thousand six. You start Altos Research, right?
1: Yeah, but I, I started building the data years before on my personal, you know, for that need. And then, so then it's 2004, 2005, and now I start realizing I have more information than anybody has. And I have, you, you could tell, you know, at the time you'd look at the newspaper and once a quarter they would print the little zip code map and this one's up and this one's down. And, you know, and, and my little zip code was a was an N.A., there were zero transactions in the little window they looked, and they go, "We don't know what's going on." <laughs> and, and I you know, I could tell you exactly there's sixty homes on the market. they're like, uh, you know, and they're priced here. This many have taken a price cut. like I could tell you exactly what's going on yeah. Yeah. and um and so that was a time when i when I started realizing that I have more information than than anybody else had. Um, with the exception of maybe you know some realtors who've been in it for a long time who had their own system, like they knew it in their guts, but they really didn't know anything. So, uh, and that's when we decided to start you know commercializing the data and,
0: and turn it into a company. Yeah. I always wonder about this with a start. Was there like one customer or client that you, you know was a bigger like sale where you went, we're on to something here, or was it a little bit? A lot of little things.
1: That uh, no, there there were a few things. I a couple of great stories on that. Um, one of which before I'd started one of the other catalysts for starting there was a company called economy.com it's now owned by Moody's uh, and it was a forecasting company and they sold they sold economic forecasting products and consulting and things like that and they had a, they had a real estate thing outlook thing that they did and they published on tens of thousands of dollars a year they would publish they sell this to corporate clients and I remember reading one, and it was probably, I think it was maybe 2005, 2004, something like that, and and it was in July, and they said, the Silicon Valley real estate market is going to crash, and I'm looking around, and it's July that year, and it's on fire, it's just skyrocketing, and you dive in, and they had source data in like january and february they'd written their report in march and april they published it in may it's june i'm reading this thing and the data they were looking at was like you know months of inventory and a few things like that that are sort of normal things to look at but they were it was six months old mm. and it was totally wrong and again i was like like i have friday Like, like I know exactly where the market is. And so, so I'm like, you know, people are paying these guys tens of thousands of dollars for this information and I'm way better. Like, and I don't, you know, and who am I, but I'm way better. So that was a big catalyst for me saying there's a business here that people pay a lot of money for. Uh, And then I I remember doing things like, um, uh, I didn't know anybody in the industry. Uh, so I didn't have any contacts. And, and so I just started talking to people and people go, oh, you should talk to my realtor. He's a data guy. You know, and and they, I'd have those conversations. I'd go and yeah. I'd sit down with them. And uh, I have there's a few folks who were very early in that conversation, some of whom are still clients today. And but I remember I sat down. There was a, there was a brokerage in San Francisco called Paragon, who is now acquired in you too. somewhere. It's probably part of compass now, but uh, along, you know, several acquisitions in probably, um, yeah. uh, but they, but they are, they, and I sat down with the VP marketing who mm-hmm. was just, you know, an introduction to the network and he, and I'm saying, here's what we're doing. we got market data. We're helping agents reach their clients. You know, we're, we have better signal here. You, you there's, you know, clients have these questions. Here's what we do. It's good. Lead gen. It's good. Lead follow up. You, you know, this is how you can. And he said, Mike, you know these agents they get their gold by mining their rolodex they got more data than they know what to do with they don't they don't need anything and so i thought okay good information this guy's not my customer but i'm learning cuz i don't even know i don't know anything at the time i don't know you know what does a broker really do like how does i don't know anything you know i yeah. bought two homes in my life and so i'm just making friends and i'm asking questions and and so then we're in the call. And I keep asking questions. I'm learning about the business, and he gets a call. In his, we're sitting in his office in San Francisco, and he gets a call from clearly it was an agent. And he says, "Yeah, Katie, I know. I'll get you those numbers. I'll get you the data. Uh, you know, I, I know. I know you want. I like. get." And and I thought hmm, that's interesting. And I but I didn't ask him about it. I didn't. You know, I didn't let him have his private phone call. Uh, and then as we wrapped up the conversation. I go hey just one last question. You know, this Katie calls you in the middle and she was asking for da- obviously asking for data. What do you use for data right? Like are you you have a system, you have software, what are you using now? He goes, "I'm just like copying and pasting into Excel." And he goes, "Wait a minute. How much is your stuff?" And like that, all of a sudden he's a customer. He's my first broker customer and and uh it was it was really fascinating, but it took that call in the middle of our conversation and
0: I thought Oh, maybe I'm onto something. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's great. That's cool. What does your mix of customers look like today? Cuz I, I know you have a wide range. It's not just realtors and brokers. Right?
1: That's right. Um, about we we do about half the company is enterprise, is an enterprise data business. Mm-hmm. So, um the companies doing valuations or building tech systems with real estate, so um that are want to build market data into their technology are there, or doing things like uh, you know the AVM, so like building you know home valuation things. Uh, so that's our enterprise data business, about half of our our business. Uh, a lot of big names that you know use our data. Uh, and then half of the business is the realtors, brokers, a lot of title companies. Uh, And where it's about, it's a more of a consumer level, reaching people with the data every week. Uh, You know, it's about um, helping reach new people. So leads in the top of your funnel and then connecting with folks over time because people want to know what's going on and everybody has an opinion about the real estate market and then it's also about closing business. So, it's a it's half and half that way. And a lot of that, you know, and a lot of that is like uh, in the in the title insurance business too for reaching agents.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I totally get that. Uh, we we will, we'll probably have a conversation after this podcast is done. Um let's 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 talk about a couple of things I thought I found just fascinating, you know, looking at your story. And, you know, first of all, I want you to talk and to let the listeners know about the Entrepreneurs Organization. That's the name of it. Now, it doesn't, it sounds like two words that don't go together. It's just weird, but the Entrepreneurs Organization, which is, I don't Yeah. Which, talk about that, how you joined that. I know you're, I think you're currently the president.
1: I just finished my term as the president. Yeah. But it's uh, the Entrepreneurs Organization. You call it EO, if you like. EO is a, it's a global network of entrepreneurs, uh, about fifteen thousand of us around the world it's ultimately it's a learning organization it's a deep dive confidential uh, and uh, personal development so when you're an entrepreneur, you face a lot of things that are super that are hard to. Discuss with people who aren't entrepreneurs. Uh, And, or it's, you know, if you're worried about making payroll, you can't discuss that with your team.
0: Right? You can't. No.
1: So, so, you know, so, you know, or you're trying to figure out, uh, or sometimes you can't even discuss that with your spouse, right? Because your spouse is, you can't burden them with that they're They're worried about all the others. so so the entrepreneur entrepreneur's organization is a place where uh, as as people who've founded and lead companies can do this deep dive thing. It's the confidentiality is really cool because you get placed into small groups, uh, ten people or so none of whom are in your industry or in your, you know, you don't do business with any of them. There's no, and and so now you're in this case where like I'm in a group with, you know, an architect and a wine import business and a robotics, you know, software company and like, you know, all these different things. Um, and so now I can be in this group and, and I can say anything about my deepest fears or, and, and so because you have this, It's super confidential, and you have this environment. It's highly structured, so you have a you have this environment where you get to go work through these things. And so, so many of us who are entrepreneurs, you desperately need these kinds of environments. Um, And so, uh, it's been transformational. My membership in the group has been. I've had transformational personal transformation moments several times over the years, and uh, both both with my personal life as well as my company. It's not just about running the company. It's about myself as a human. And uh, so I've had, and, and then, so because I, I appreciate it so much and I, I just love the network and the organization, uh, I, I was president of the San Francisco chapter. So there's a hundred of us in San Francisco. And and uh, uh, it was really a remarkable experience for me this year getting to lead and you know learn from Really neat people who, who go build big companies. It's cool.
0: You also are going down a path of not only leading and learning, but teaching. And I, I want to talk about the uh, Hack Happiness Project because yeah. I found this fascinating. In fact, I shared um, part of the philosophy of positivity with my wife. And she was blown away. She said, that is the answer. That is everything, right? Aww. Goals and positivity. Um, so talk about, first of all, I, I've heard you talk about this before. you talk about the white paper you wrote? No, yep. you wrote like a 67 page treatment. This is not a white paper. I thought a white paper was one or two pages. I, I guess I just did I don't know.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's now a couple hundred pages into the book. So I'm all like the, in, I'm, Working with a, with the editors right now and d- doing the development, so it, like I can actually publish it as a book, and that's nice. a lot of work too. That that, um, but, but <laughs> sure. I'm, I'm on it. Uh, but yeah, so hacking happiness is a is a process that I went through, personal transformation time. It actually has its roots in my EO group. We all go through these times where you you find yourself in crisis mode and maybe you're depressed or you're down like and 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 for me that time was 2017 um i had the company for 11 years and i was deeply uninspired and when you're deeply uninspired you you know i'd spent three years rewriting our software and so you know like all we just blah Um, and then of course when you're in that space then you don't do things like You don't do like, hey, yes, let's do your podcast or, hey, let's pick up the phone and do like you don't do these things. And then, you know, so it becomes a negative spiral. And I had to make a transition. I had to fix things. Uh, And so hacking happiness is really the observation that we can be purposeful in our internal chemistry. Uh, In particular, I I focus on four neurotransmitters, four hormones, that we can be purposeful. We can adjust these four neurotransmitters with perfect hacks, perfect purposeful actions yeah. to create emotional condition, the emotional conditions that result in success uh, they, that we think about, you know, we know we're supposed to have positive attitude and, you know, write down our goals and we, you know, these things, like meditate, like, you know, these things. Um, but for me, the understanding of the biology Of the emotions was pivotal for me to doing the work and then when i when you do the work all the good things happen and so all of a sudden 2018 is remarkably amazing for me as a human as a company Uh, 2019 and and even through the crisis time in 2020 has been uh, like Like I've been able to keep myself in a really, like a really amazing learning, growing space. And I think it helps me keep an an attitude so that I can help the people around me as well.
0: Yeah. Do you mind sharing the, uh, the philosophy about maybe why being goal-driven isn't so such a good thing? I mean, it has to be there to an extent, but I mean, the way we measure. Yeah,
1: so so the four I'll start with the four hormones. The four hormones that I focus on are serotonin, oxytocin, dopamine and cortisol. Serotonin is the anchor chemical of our happiness. So when we're joyful and having a great time and we're good at our work and we're confident, that's serotonin. And literally when you when you think about it, when you're doing those things, your serotonin is rising in your body and and also, when your serotonin is rising, you're feeling those things. So it's the biology of our emotions. Oxytocin is the, uh, is the love chemical. So when we're expressing love, like, I love you, Bill, that's a, an expression of oxytocin. You know, what's interesting is that having things like oxytocin high also has measurable implications, like, I am a faster problem solver. When my oxytocin is high, like humans solve problems faster when they're, when the oxytocin is high, um, dopamine is the reward chemical. So dopamine is like, you know, you win the game or, you know, you get the score, you close the deal, you set your goals. And because you set your goals, you go hit, you know, you go hit your goals, then that's dopamine. That's why, why setting goals and hitting goals feels good is because you get a little dopamine reward. And the last one is cortisol. Cortisol is the stress hormone. And so anger and fear and, you know, uh, all the the negative energy is is an expression of cortisol. So hacking happiness is let's keep the three high, serotonin, oxytocin, dopamine, and we drop the cortisol down low. And that's our our powerful magnetic charismatic state. When we are in that state, that's when all of a sudden, you know, people come to you and go, hey, Bill, uh, I got a cool project for you. Right. I have like or yes, let's do business, you know, because we're in this space. So back to your question about goal setting. So with most of our life in modern world, in our modern world, we we are we are in a dopamine cortisol cycle. Dopamine is based on reward. Every time you get a little red bubble on the phone, that's dopamine. Every time you you know, you know, when you pick up the phone and you open your email app because it feels like you're working. That's because you're, the, it, the phone is giving you dopamine, it's like, "Oh, I should be doing this." Yeah. The problem is that if we just focus on dopamine, dopamine's fleeting. It goes away super fast. It's, it's half-life in our blood is like two minutes. up, down. And so if we just focus on dopamine, then we, we miss the purposefulness and the love of serotonin oxytocin. And we miss the benefits of those things. So we we get in this dopamine cortisol cycle. Where we're in traffic, and the you know we have voicemails and deadlines, and these things are all tr- driving cortisol. And so we get it, it. It becomes hollow, and and it becomes uninspiring. And you know you, you you probably know, especially in real estate, like we know tons of people who are like, you know, I sell a lot of houses, and I am miserable. Yep. Right. Yep. And. And so they can go get their dopamine reward. They know how to work their systems and get, you know, make a living, but man, they're not happy about it. And, and so this is the, that's the, the big realization that, that I had is I, I had to focus on my serotonin and my oxytocin so that I could lift myself to that whole new level of performance. Now hitting the dopamine, now it's rocket fuel. Now it's those times when, you know, when setting the goals, is like amazing and and you you go hit it and the team is running for it that's because the team has this foundation of serotonin then they can go hit the do, the dopamine goals if it's just about the dopamine it's it, it's super inspiring very quickly and, and then you just get stuck you miss your goal and now even looking at the plan is an exercise in cortisol straight down straight down
0: yeah exactly that's great so that's the, the framework. So I can't wait for the book to come out. That's going to be awesome. I might have to have you back on. We'll just talk about the book. That'd I be can't great. Wait. Uh, <laughs> so, like, I've had you well past the time I've asked of your time, and I want to. I always ask the same question at the end of every show, all 246 episodes before yours, and that is, if you could give one piece of advice to a brand new real estate agent, what would it be?
1: Um, Let's see. One piece of advice to a brand new real estate agent. I am absolutely certain that the personal aspect of the real estate transaction is here forever. It is a Uh, it it is the reason that you see a lot of tech companies come in and in discount it's like their first thing is like oh we're gonna get rid of the real estate agent and then they grow when they grow over time they realize that what humans want is most of us want a high service transaction like they like we want hand holding we want Pick up the papers for me, or like, hey, oh, I'm I'm looking at this one. Do I sign here? That, like, whatever the things are, like, there's all kinds of nuance in there that we we appreciate and we want to pay for. And so, so I am convinced that 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 power, that that connection, that that real expert guidance of the real estate agent is. We're here for a long time, so develop that.
0: Mike, if somebody wants to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Uh, at altosresearch.com. That's the website. Uh, Altos is A-L-T-O-S, altosresearch.com. And just, you know, Mike at for email or stop by and check out if they want to check out products or, you know, whatever. That's, uh, that's great. Or, you know, on the social media as well. Mike Simonson. Awesome.
0: Mike, thank you so much for your time today. I knew I was going to have a great time talking to you. Um, your passion it's, like, it's pouring out of you. I hope you realize that. It's been very fun to, to, to watch some of the other things you've been doing recently. Thank Super you. cool. So continued Thank
1: success. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. My serotonin is very high right now because of the conversation.
0: Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Sessions podcast. To leave a review or rating, go to ratethispodcast.com slash sessions. You can also subscribe to the podcast at your favorite podcast listening app. Finally, you can go to com and subscribe to our email newsletter and be notified whenever a new episode is released.